0: Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this episode of Autism Goes to College, the podcast for students on the spectrum and everyone who supports us. Navigating college is always a challenge, so here are the hacks, insights, and great ideas you've been looking for to make college work for you. We're a group of self-advocates, we all graduated, or we're almost there, and you can do this too.
1: This podcast is all about how the increasing numbers of students on the spectrum heading to college are navigating college life. Hi, I'm Eric Lindhorst, director of the documentary film Autism Goes to College. When we shot the movie a little over two years ago, we found that most colleges were being tested in meeting the needs of neurodiverse students. And since then, we keep hearing and seeing that those services are evolving at colleges all over the country Each episode of this podcast unpacks personal experiences and offers insights about what is out there. And today we head to the University of Nevada at Reno, where Charlie O'Neill is taking classes and living the college life. Hey, Charlie, thank you for joining me.
2: You're welcome.
1: Also joining us is Jessica Kefauver, who is Charlie's academic advisor and runs the Path to Independence program at the University of Nevada, Reno. Jessica, thank you so much for being here with us as well.
3: Hi. Thanks, Eric. Nice to be here.
1: I'm excited that this episode takes us into new territory because we'll talk with Charlie and Jessica about the certificate program at the University of Nevada, Reno, called Path to Independence, which is a college experience for students who are not on a degree-granting path. The program is designed for young adults who want a college experience, want to explore their academic interests, gain life skills, and while they have not been admitted to a degree program, want to enjoy campus life. There are now literally hundreds of programs like this around the country, and from our research, it seems like it's pretty competitive to get in, actually. And Jessica will explain some of that later in this episode. But let's hear from Charlie first about how he's liking his experience at the University of Nevada in Reno so far. Charlie, you've been there for about a year now. Can you tell me what you like about the program that you're in?
2: Uh, The program, I mean, it, it, it is... Based on uh, classes, school classes, things like that, and academic, and also the living, independent living. And what classes did you have you taken so far? Well, last year I took anthropology, swimming, and yoga. And and this coming fall, what do you have lined up? I have French. And I have uh, intro of arts, and I have and I have hey, H- H- hg T twenty with Jessica. And and how did you decide what to take? Does somebody help
1: guide you, or you just choose what you're interested in?
2: Uh, Jessica and I figured it out.
1: Nice, based on your interests and and uh, stuff like that. Um, and what about for fun? What tell me about the places you go to hang out?
2: Well, let's see. I hang out. At the Joe, sometimes, and I also also go to the park and hang, and 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 do workout.
1: And the Joe—that's the student union. Yeah. And and what about making friends? Are, are there's good places to make friends? Have you been able to make friends?
2: Uh, I made friends with Walker.
1: Was that in the the apartment or on campus, or how did you guys meet? That was in the apartments. Okay, so you met him in in your apartment, um, and I understand that you tried uh, a program at UCLA first. H- how was that program different from the program you're in now?
2: Different. Well, let's see. UCLA was 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 tough at times, and 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 then I, I came here, and it was smooth for the first year, and then the second year I'm looking forward to.
1: And what was tough about UCLA that first year?
2: Well, UCLA had a lot of kids that were not so well.
1: So you, had a, you, you, you weren't getting along with the other kids as well as you would have liked?
2: No, I was not, no.
1: And what was it uh, that made you move on to the program you're in now in Reno?
2: The program I'm in now in Reno is, is different.
1: It sounds like you like it better, yeah?
2: Yeah, I like this apartment better. It's it's a lot better.
1: And can you tell me a little bit about where you live? You have an apartment. Can you describe your setup for me? And is this a a one bedroom, a two bedroom apartment? What?
2: It, it it's a two bedroom apartment.
1: Okay, so you have your own room.
2: I have my own room. I got roommates, my Michael and Mania. And those are your roommates. Yeah, and and also my my caregivers.
1: I see, so you live with two other two roommates who are also your caregivers. How does that work?
2: yeah, yeah, uh, well, HSI works with them
1: I see okay well, that's a great snapshot of what you're up to, Charlie. You live with uh, roommates that are your caregivers. That living arrangement is not part of the path to independence program, but it is an option. let's talk a little bit about the core of the program, Jessica. Um, I know that Path to Independence focuses on five key areas. Uh, Can you talk with me a little bit about the philosophy and the approach?
3: Yeah, so we do um, a form of person-centered planning. It's called a STAR plan, and the name stands for Students Transitioning to Adult Roles. And we look at five areas of um, each individual student. We look at their academic interests, their um, community and independent living skills. We look at their self-determination skills, kind of what their employment activities are, and then the, the independent and the community are actually two separate um, sections. So it's really like, how are they accessing their communities currently and what do they want to do? And then look at their independent living skills, where they're at currently, and then also what they want to do. So, or what they want to improve on. So we go through every year and do an hour-long planning meeting with, um, sometimes it's longer, but with each student individually with their support system. So that could be family, that could be an adult agency service provider also in that meeting, and um, like Charlie, for example, that has extra supports that the family provides, they can also attend that meeting. It's really whoever the individual student wants to join them that can help talk about where they're at and where they want to go, and we can all weave together to help make a good support plan.
1: And are all of the Path to Independent students on the spectrum?
3: No. Um, Our program is for students with intellectual disabilities. So um, being on the spectrum is one of those qualifying categories. Um, But we also do have students who are diagnosed with Down syndrome. We have students who maybe have a diagnosis of a brain injury. So we have a really wide range of student populations.
1: Interesting. And the academic piece, I'm wondering, um, as I understand it, it has three requirements to gain a certificate. Can you talk us through what is required and what is expected?
3: So through the the four semesters that they're with us, because it's a two-year program, they have to take at least one class among three different categories. So one category is literature, art, and language. So for example, Charlie's intro to the arts class qualifies in that category. Another category is history, social studies, or civilization. So when he took anthropology, that fit into that category. And then we also have a math, science, and environmental requirement, which can actually be one of the hardest ones to do. But Charlie, you forgot you took community health sciences? Yeah. Yeah. He took a community health science class that was talking about personal health and wellness. And so that fits into that category. So he is all set. He's on track to graduate our program on time.
1: And how do students decide what to take?
3: Part of it comes out of that STAR plan. That STAR plan is, again, we talk about their academic interests. And with that, we might talk about weaknesses or areas to maybe avoid a bit. But we also connect as much as we can also to their employment goals. So the classes that they're taking and interested in might have some loose translation or connection to their employment goals, or it can just be an area of interest as kind of required by our certificate requirements. So like taking French, for example, that's his personal interest. Foreign language is definitely not a requirement for us.
1: Interesting, yeah. And and what uh, what supports does the program have to ensure that they're keeping up and understanding what they're taking?
3: So we pair them with educational coaches. They are peer tutors that we hire and they are paid to support them in a class. They go to class with them take notes, help with study habits, and can also help break down um, concepts and even support with assignment completion. And then I meet with students once a week for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, and we check in on how things are going.
1: Interesting. And Charlie, can you tell me a little bit about your coaching? How, how, how has the coaching worked for you?
2: Uh, well, coaching, working, it's been going well.
1: So you've had the same coach last year that you're going to have this year?
2: No, 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 different.
1: Different coach. Is that part of the program? Is that they change coaches or that's just how it worked out?
2: Yes, it is. Yes, very much. But
1: so far, that's been helpful to you to have that coach to check in with?
2: Yeah. Uh, Charlie, how
1: often did you meet with your or do you meet with your academic coach? And what do they help you with exactly?
2: Um, Well, they help me with um, meetings and stuff. And writing, things like that. So
1: is it more um, sort of staying on schedule with things and remembering your appointments, or is it more like uh, tutoring kind of stuff, or both?
2: Remembering your appointments.
3: Did they help you with reading or studying?
2: Yeah, study guides. Study guides, okay, interesting. And
1: Jessica, can students take these classes for credit?
3: So, yes. Even for our certificate program, they don't have to take it for credit. They can audit the class, but students can take and have taken classes for credit. When they take it for credit, we are limited to standard accommodations only, and sometimes that's not really the best learning path for our students. So, if they decide to audit the class, then we can actually simplify assignments or do things that we cannot do if they take it for credit as far as like maybe eliminating some larger assignments or making a test, like 15 questions instead of 50. So if they're getting it for a grade, we cannot modify the difficulty of the class, really.
1: Understood, understood. And are the life skills sessions also classes or are those more like community-based programs?
3: That's actually something that's new for us this year. We were granted credit-bearing status by the university. So our one of our classes is going to be about success in life and in college, and it has a lot of personal success strategies, and we actually are doing that one for credit. Our past one, Our past classes did not qualify for credit.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. And Charlie, um, it sounds like you text a lot and you're on Canvas, which is the platform the program uses to keep you connected to class reading and stuff. How does that all work for you? Is that Are those tools helpful?
2: Yes, I think so.
1: Uh, Jessica, it seems like some tech savvy is important for students in your program, mostly stuff like texting and the ability to use the platform that keeps them connected to their work. Can you talk about the level of tech capability needed and why is that so important?
3: Yeah, it is hugely important. It's actually best if students have a smartphone. We don't require a certain model, but iPhones are better just because we know how to use them if the student does need a little bit of help. All of the stuff they use for Canvas, there's an app that goes on their phone, too. So a lot of reminders about assignments can come through that way. And they really need to have functional communication skills, reading, writing, and speaking, even if it's adaptive. so But they have to be able to communicate with us like, hey, I'm lost on campus. I can't tell you the building I'm at, but I can send you a picture. Or, hey, I forgot I need to turn something in. Can someone help me schedule a time to meet with my professor? They really have to have some basic management of their own phones and know how to answer a text message or listen to a calendar reminder that tells them they need to go somewhere because if they just turn it off and snooze it and don't go where they need to go we're going to have some challenges that might need a little bit more prompts and usually we figure that out in the first couple of weeks and they you know learn through some natural consequences and processes and it's amazing to see how well they grow not only with their accountability with stuff like that but also just with the technology they get a lot more fluid
1: you know, being at college is a, a big transition for any young person. Charlie, I'm wondering, what was for you the, the biggest challenge of this experience?
2: My biggest challenge was um, studying and all that. And did you feel
1: ready for the classes?
2: Yes, I did.
1: And what about the social aspect? Was there anything difficult about the the social acclimation to life on, on a college campus?
2: Yeah, it was a little bit.
1: And how did you overcome that? How did
2: you deal with that? Well, I dealt with it by dropping it, and yes.
3: Are you talking about your swimming class that you dropped?
2: Yeah.
1: So you were in a swimming class, and it wasn't working for you, so you dropped that class? Yeah. And how, how did that go? Did that feel empowering to be able to say, I don't want to do this? Yeah. Jessica, can you talk a little bit about the level of confidence students tend to bring and contrast that with, for example, their parents who may or may not have the same level of confidence in their kids that the kids have in themselves?
3: Yeah, a lot of times students come pretty excited, but maybe a little nervous about the size of our campus. Um, We have over 20,000 students, so it's a big it's a big campus, so for a lot of them, the students, the biggest fear is, like, the jump in size and just so many people. Some of them are nervous about large lectures that have, like, 150 kids or more, but generally, that's what they're the most nervous about. Parents, on the other hand, are usually nervous about everything. Like, how how is my student going to get to class? What if they get lost? You know, how are they going to know where to eat lunch? What if someone, you know, they overcharge for their lunch and they get you know someone takes their money or just all of those I mean the rational fears right That I think most parents have just maybe at a different degree because they're so used to their students having a lot more support so they kind of are a little freaked out about what does this look like when my students on a campus with 20,000 other people and no one's gonna just sit with them all day what does that mean so downtime can be kind of stressful and the first year, we have to really talk to families about, don't just drop them off and pick them up for classes. Like, let them have some downtime and hang out and find some places to, to just chill, and that's okay. And sometimes we have to show them what those places are. We have a, a virtual reality lab that they can go play games in. We have student lounges where they can just hang out. So it's really teaching them that the environment at the college level is different, and they're not always having to be busy all the time.
1: And is it okay for parents to let their kids struggle a little bit at college?
3: Absolutely. I actually encourage it because they learn a lot better when they do struggle. And we've seen a lot of students where their behavior tells us they may not want something. So we've got to kind of coach them through that process of how do I articulate whether I want something or not without having my parent tell them for me. So a lot of times we also have to remind families like, Great, I'm glad you sent me the email, but I'd really like to hear it from your student, not just you. So how can we facilitate that in a way that the student is empowered in making not only the decisions, but also communicating what they want?
1: yeah that's super tough. I mean I speak as a parent of a seventeen year old and i I know that the anxiety is is that you you think you need to think through every possible scenario that your child might find themselves in at college and then come up with a sort of prepackaged solution for that, but that's not really the way it works, is it?
3: No, not really and sometimes they really surprise us like things that we would be really overwhelmed by is is not necessarily a big deal to them like they don't necessarily like perceive it the same way, right? I've had students who failed a class and because they tried to take it for credit and, you know, their, their, like other adults were like, oh, they failed, like, oh, that's bad. And the student was like, no, I learned so much. I'm really proud of myself. And so they just see things from a different perspective and we can't always, you know, prepare for that or assume what the outcome's going to be. And so letting them have that dignity of risk, just like any other student gets, is super important. And I really work to advocate for that with students and with families.
1: I really love that phrase, dignity of risk. That's cool, I haven't heard that before.
3: It's a great phrase. It's actually really common in the special ed world. It's really about choice and that self-determination and just the opportunity to make mistakes because we all learn by making mistakes. Failing doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that whatever you tried didn't work and we gotta try it a different way.
1: That's great. In our Autism Goes to College project, we found that in talking with students that professors have varying levels of, let's say, understanding and inclusion. Charlie, would you say that your professors and your teachers have been helpful? Yes, I would. And, and would you describe them as seeming open? Uh, do they seem to know how to work with a student on the spectrum?
2: Uh-huh. Open as well. That's great to hear.
1: Jessica, do professors know uh, that they will have a path to independent student in their classes? Do you meet with them or, or send an email, or how does that work?
3: Yeah, so I send an email at the beginning of the semester just introducing our program in general and the concept of this is what our program is, this is what our students typically look like, and an educational coach will be attending the class with them. And then I will offer to meet with them individually to go over any questions, concerns they may have. I encourage the student and the ed coach to introduce themselves at the end of the first class. So COVID made that really weird and we had to get permissions for ed coaches to be added to classes in a different way. So it was kind of a mess, but I'm really looking forward to going back to the in-person where the student and the ed coach can make a connection with the professor in a different way because the virtual world definitely made that harder.
1: And something we definitely heard from professors about in the film was their readiness to help students on the spectrum. Have you done any professional development with professors?
3: Um, I really do it on a case-by-case basis. I've been really fortunate with our professors here that they've been very receptive and welcoming. We have a neurodiversity initiative here on campus, and so I think that has also helped. So there is an uh, inclusion Um, summit every year and neurodiversity is always a big um, component of that so the university itself is actually promoting that a lot more and then with our students I can definitely go through any specific concerns that might be related to the unique circumstances of our students because they're even less traditional than um, some students coming on the spectrum that make make it into the college under normal entrance guidelines.
1: Would you like to see mandated training for neurodiversity uh, among faculty?
3: Oh, yeah. I think that it benefits everybody. And we have a really diverse student population here on campus anyway. With 20,000 people, you're going to see a lot of diversity. But yeah, absolutely. I think it would benefit all students. And um, we recently did have, uh, we're doing a lot of Apple training and have had accessible features and universal design for learning instruction for and like professors and university faculty. So the university really does a lot here, in my opinion, to help promote that, though we can always do more, for sure.
1: That's really interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about the getting in process. So Path to Independence has a screening process, which includes some on-campus visits and investigations of the students' aspirations versus maybe the parents' aspirations. Can you dive into that a little bit?
3: Yeah, so we have a typical like paper application process where they fill out their demographics and their interests and they attach copies of any IEP documentation. We have them do general skills assessments um, with someone at home. So we get some paper-based information about them. And then um, we invite students to do an activity day on campus. And we kind of run them through a mock lecture that lasts about 30 minutes. We see how they do kind of interacting with the other group of students who are being interviewed. So we do some little icebreaker activities. We ask them to do a reading assessment and a writing assessment. They're pretty low key, take about maybe 30 minutes a piece. And um, it also shows us how well they're using you know, technology, uh, using the computer in the lab to email a writing sample. We also have them do some activities with their cell phones so that we do see that functional cell phone usage in action. And it also helps us know like whose phones might not work in the buildings, whether they've got some connectivity issues, which is not a disqualifier, just good information to know. We've done a scavenger hunt before so that we use their mapping skills to help find buildings on campus. That was actually really fun. And then that is a, a pretty much a, gosh, six hour day activity. Um, and then the next day we actually do interviews and we interview the parents and the students and we interview them together at the same time, but we ask like not to interrupt. So the, when the questions are directed at the students, the parents are really asked not to intervene. Um, not asked to coach or anything like that. And we can see how hard that is for a lot of families. And then we interview the parents and ask the students not to interject or interrupt. And so it's a really interesting way to also understand the family dynamic too, to see like who might have a really easy time, kind of like letting go and having that dignity of risk and who might need more support in helping their um, adult child kind of move through these next steps.
1: That's interesting, and um, as we talked in the beginning that these programs seem to be popping up all over the place, can you give um, students and parents who are listening a very quick summary of the range of programs that you see out there popping up, and maybe what are the key differences and and what to look for?
3: There are, are over 300 programs across the country. What I would suggest is that just like any kid looks at college to see what kind of program meets their needs, That's what I really suggest parents and students do here, is that they dive into figuring out which programs offer what. Some programs offer a residential component. We do not at this time. So some students can live on campus. Some students can live with other peers in a group home, like a group house that is for the whole program. And the programs also have different academic foci. So like our program is kind of a mixed model because we're still transitioning our independent living classes to being credit bearing. Some programs are mixed like us where students take regular college classes and also some program specific classes. Some programs are fully inclusive and the students only take university classes. And some programs are really a program on a college campus. And the classes are program-specific and focus more in the community. And they're on the campus, and they do some of the campus things, and maybe they work in the campus environment, but maybe they're not taking the academic college classes. So it varies widely, and it's really important that people do their homework and figure out what, what is the best fit for them and their you know, outcome goals for their students.
1: That's interesting. And Charlie, do you have any advice for students um, like you in choosing a program at college or how to get comfortable once you're there?
2: Yeah, I do. One of the things is that I encourage my my students, I encourage them to 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 learn independence.
1: What was what has been the biggest gift of, of your college experience so far? What's been the best part?
2: Well, I love all my academic classes, and I want to move on from there.
1: Thank you, both of you, for joining us today. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening to this episode of the Autism Goes to College podcast podcast. New episodes are released monthly. If you're a fan of the show, one way you can help us out today is to leave a review of the podcast on the Apple Podcast app. We'd also love to hear from you if you have some feedback or if there's a topic you'd like us to feature in an upcoming episode. You can reach us at autismgoestocollege at gmail.com or through our website at autismgoestocollege.org. If you haven't seen the documentary film yet, good news. The film is now available for rent on Vimeo On Demand. You can access that through our website as well. And if you represent a school or organization and would like to use the film to educate your community about neurodiversity on campus, the educational use rights are available through the video project, also accessible through our website. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.
3: Thank you, Eric.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Autism Goes to College. We'd love to hear from you about what you'd like to hear more about. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Autism Goes to College. Hit us up with your thoughts. Tell us what's going on on your campus and in your college life. To see the documentary film or set up a screening, check out our website at autismgoestocollege.org.